0: Let's just ask God's blessing on the Word. Father, we come before you now in the precious name of Jesus, and we pray that you teach us your ways in this message. God, speak to each man here. Let something of this message be relevant to them. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Well, Dr. Adam last week was in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm not going to preach from there. But uh, that first verse is such a good verse there, the one thought that comes out. He said, finally, brothers, we instruct you how to live in order to please God as in, fact you are, as, in fact, you are living. Now, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. What an interesting idea. Okay, you're pleasing God, but strive to please him more. And so basically, without getting into that, is uh, uh, we can please him, there's the ability to go further and please them more. And what happens all too often is people just kind of get comfortable where they're at, and they don't go any further. They don't strive to please them any further than what they have to the point of coming to salvation or where they're at in their Christian life. And the Lord um, has something more for us. He wants to do a deeper, a greater work. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to share from a, an account in the Old Testament from the book of Judges, and then we're going to share something uh, of of teaching uh, in the New Testament. But uh, if you want to give this message a title, you could call it Conquered. And uh, we're going to look at Samson and Delilah. I'm not doing this here to focus upon sexual sins. Of course, sexual sins is here, but that's not why I'm doing it, because what we're going to look at are the principles that are uh, can touch any sin that we allow in our life, anything with that. And so it's the danger that goes on without understanding what's, what sin is and what it has Uh, as a power to bring us into bondage. And we need to be serious about it. We need to really understand. And if we don't understand, then we're in trouble because somewhere down the road, uh, we're going to be taken captive. And we're going to find ourselves in some serious trouble because we didn't understand the nature of sin, the nature of Satan, and what he's out to do. So let's give the setting of it. We're going to be in in Judges 16, but I just want to give you the setting. And this one verse sets the stage for what's going on. And uh, in Judges 13, verse 1, again, terrible word with this, what's going on here. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. So again, they did it. I mean, that's basically the, the book of Judges, again and again and again. God delivers, they get in bondage, they cry out finally in their bondage, and then God delivers them, and then their prosperity, they start forsaking God, and then that cycle just keeps going on and on and on. I mean, it's just this repetition that goes on through the whole life of Israel. I mean, it's, it's terrible, and guess what? It easily goes on in our life, that whole cycle that can go there. Now, what ends up happening is, is God was not defending the children of Israel And the Philistines were, in that part of the world, the superpower of the day. And the reason why they were the superpower of the day, they had iron, and they knew how to work it, and they knew how to make it into iron weapons, and into chariots, and all kinds of other implements for war. And so the other nations around them did not have that, because the Philistines, they weren't from the area. They came from another part of, of the world, and they had come there and settled there, and they brought with them that knowledge of iron. Israel didn't have that. So they didn't have weapons of war like the Philistines did. They didn't have chariots. And so they were these people that had been just subjugated by the Philistines because of their tremendous force. Imagine you're trying to go against a a tank and you have a pitchfork in your hand. You know, anything you wanted. If you had a sickle and you wanted it sharpened, you had to go to the Philistines to do it because they did not allow you to have anything to be able to work with metal. They knew how to keep you powerless And though we don't know where it really came from, how Israel got uh, the ability to start working with iron, we really think that it came through King David, through the time that he spent uh, with the Philistines, and before he became king. And while he was there, he learned how to work with iron, and his men did, and brought that into Israel, where then once they started getting the ability to work with iron, they eventually became the superpower of the day under King David. So what happened is the children of Israel sinned once again. Once again, went into idolatry. Once again, went into all the sensuality that was revolved revolved around it. But even more than that, they went and did the greatest thing of all, the worst thing of all, is they forsook their first love. They stopped loving God. And the moment they stopped loving God with everything was the moment idols started slowly coming into their life and they became bigger and bigger and more and more dominating until there was no place for God, no room for God. And the sad thing is it can happen with us because we all have wandering hearts. All of us have wandering hearts. And if we don't understand that reality, then we're not going to look at our heart and understand that nature on how it so easily wanders. And so you and I have had that experience. You know, you're doing great in Jesus. I mean, everything's going wonderful. I mean, you're on this spiritual high. You're just walking in victory, and then two months later... You know, you're struggling going, what in the world happened? How did I get here? And you don't even know how that happened. You don't even realize it, but all of a sudden you just, that passion's gone and everything else, so you got to go and start stoking that fire again. I mean, it's just this cycle that we go through. And if we mature in Christ, we should be going through that less and less, or let's say not as severe of, of, of highs and lows in essence, that we start having a greater balance and stability in our life. So God went and raised up judges, And the first judge of Israel was Moses. And so from Moses came Joshua and the other judges that were there. And what it was is the the whole concept that God was bringing there is that I will be king to my people. But they wouldn't submit to the king. They went and had their, their, their own rebellious desires and ambitions and they followed that instead of allowing Jesus to be the king of their life. And so when they cried out in their misery and their pain, God in his mercy Because of the covenants that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he went and responded to them, heard their cry, and would bring deliverance. So God was going to bring deliverance through a man that is, uh, I don't think, should be in any Sunday school lesson for children, period. I mean, he's a horrid, horrid example, just a horrid example. I mean, what do we do? We look at this big, strong man, and that's what we focus on. But you look at his characters, we're going to see the man was an absolute wimp spiritually. He was a wimp. He was a defeated man, lived defeated life because he refused to walk surrendered to Jesus. That's the whole thing. He refused to live a surrendered life, so he's constantly in this place of defeat, but yet the little bit that God did use him produced in him a self-righteousness that blinded him even more to his spiritual condition. And so Manoah had a wife that was sterile, so they didn't have children. And you and I don't really understand. In that culture, it was an absolute disgrace for a wife not to have a child. I mean, it was, it was traumatic um, because the expectation was there. And I'm not going to go into that. But she was sterile, and I do not doubt that she was crying out to God for a child. Well, one day an angel came to her and told her that she would conceive a son and that he must be raised as a Nazarite. Now, the Nazarite... The, the whole Nazarite and the vow of a Nazarite was codified in the, in the Mosaic law. So it went and brought in these regulations and how it was supposed to work. But the basic idea was that is somebody that was going to be a Nazarite or be a Nazarite for life, that's what Samson was supposed to be, is he was to be consecrated unto the Lord. He was not to live in sin, and he was not to allow any aspect of the grape, to touch them, to eat anything. They couldn't eat grapes. They couldn't drink grape juice. They couldn't drink alcohol of any sort. I think that's really good advice there. So that was the basic thing. So what was this? What was going to go on? This man was supposed to grow up having a Nazarite vow, being specially consecrated unto the Lord for the use of God, for a purpose to what? Deliver the children of Israel. Okay? That was the whole purpose. That's what the angel said. And, and that's what was going on with this. And Samson should have understood the importance of this, but he didn't. He didn't understand it all. He just brushed it off. So what happens is she has a, a, a son and uh, calls him Samson. And, you know, the one thing about a Nazarite vow is that they were not to cut their hair. There was no power in the hair. All right, we got to understand it. There is nothing magical in his hair. What it was, it was about something very important that we'll touch on here. It was about covenant. Okay? Serious. And this is more serious than we understand. And I think we need to understand how this applies to our life. Because if we become a true follower of Jesus, we made covenant with God. And to break that covenant, to compromise that covenant, is, is a greater sin than we can even fathom because it is an insult to the very person of God that he is not worthy, he's not fit, he does not deserve our consecration, our devotion to him. And so we let compromise in our life because we fail to understand what he's really called us to, what this Christianity really means. Now going to Judges 16, verse 1 gives us a revelation of the man. One day Samson went to Gaza... Where he, w- where he saw a prostitute, and he went in and spent the night with her. Okay, I'm going to give you an absolute here. I'll give you an absolute. Men of God don't sleep with prostitutes. Men of God aren't in sexual sin. You understand what I said there? That's an absolute. That's not a maybe. Now, there may be people that claim to be men of God. There may be those in some positions of power and position in the church, but if they're in sexual sin, they're not a man of God. No matter what they say, no matter what they boast, what they claim, they're not. Most of them aren't even saved. So here's a man that is barely hanging on to his covenant because he has, hasn't broken with the cutting of his hair. Every other way he has broken covenant with God. Every other way. Just by a, a, a hair, in essence, he's hanging on to this covenant. So the compromise that we allow in our life is a revelation of our character. You know that, don't you? You understand what I just said there? The compromise in our life, whatever that may be, whether it's sexual, whether it's whatever, is a revelation of your character. What does that say about you then? What does that say? We need to really understand it because what we do is we so whitewash sin, we make it not that big a deal. I just got this little problem or whatever it is. And I don't care the name of the sin, but we do it and we fail to understand what that is speaking to us about ourselves. What is the revelation That it would reveal if we opened our eyes and said, what is this sin? What I'm doing, what is this revealing about myself? And if we opened our eyes up and saw it, it should terrify us if we're in the place of compromise. And so this was a revelation about his character. You know the strange thing? After he slept with this prostitute, they were waiting to kill him outside of the city. So they were going to kill him when the sun came up in the morning. It was dark out, so they were in hiding. So in the middle of the night, he gets up, and that's where he rips the gates of the city and the doorposts off and takes it a long ways away and drops it off. Do you know what that does? You, I want you to understand this. He is he's walking away saying, well, I slept with a prostitute. No big deal. God's blessing is on my life. Look, at I still got my strength. Look, at I ripped the gates of the city out. Everything's okay between me and God. And yet the man is on the verge of breaking covenant with God, on the verge of being separated from him. And he fails to understand what's going on. Self-righteousness is really deceptive, really, really because it's lies, you know? It's lies. We can be so far from God, so far from him, but then we think everything's okay because, well, look, he blessed me. I, I told somebody about Jesus. Well, yeah, I've been in this sin for a while, but hey, you know, all the excuses that we have and we fail to understand that God can even speak through a donkey, and so you think you're special then, huh? <laughs> uh, scary thought. So, what was Samson's real problem? An unsurrendered will. The entirety of his life was a refusal to surrender. He wanted control. He wanted to do things his way. He wanted to do what he wanted to do. And he just wanted God to bless him in what he did. And that goes on, I mean, I mean, if I might say it like this is surrender is probably the hardest thing you will ever have to do in your life. And it's not a one-time event. It is a constant, non-stop event. Surrender goes on constantly because we can do a lot of surrender in little things or in a lot of little things not surrender, and it becomes something big. And so surrender happens in each and every thing. You're at work, somebody tells you to do something, and you can just do it joyfully or you can do it with a bad attitude. Guess what you just did? There was a surrender to something that was there. There was a surrender to that which was the flesh life or something that is, is to God. But there was surrender going on to something. There is nobody on this planet that is not surrendered to something or someone. People might say they want to be a free thinker, a free individual. No such things. They, it doesn't happen. It does not happen with mankind. And so they are submitting to one thing or another. It's just a matter of what they're submitting to. And so here's Here's the thing. Samson went in to spend the night with a prostitute, but he failed to understand that he was the prostitute, that he was prostituting himself. Do you understand what I just said there? He was the prostitute. He was selling his soul for sex, or it could be drugs, or it could be money, or it could be just laziness. It could be gaming, you name it. People sell their soul for all kinds of absolutely worthless stuff. And whatever the name is, in one sense, is irrelevant. It's that they have given themselves over to something, and they have become the prostitute now, even though they've been hiring the supposed prostitute. So that's what he was. The man was a spiritual prostitute. And who who, who was he selling himself to? Understand this. Who was he prostituting himself to? Wasn't that prostitute herself. He was prostituting himself to the devil. The devil was paying, in essence, I want you as my prostitute. And so what happens? He goes after that individual who then is selling himself to the devil. Now, is that a scary thought? I want it to be, okay? I want it to be because we don't understand what sin is. We think it's not that big a deal. That's why we have all these little compromises in our life, because we really don't understand what's going on, because we think, well, if it's a little sin, well, I'm just kind of like being a little bit of a prostitute. I'm not being this full-blown prostitute, am I? But you sell yourself to the devil in a little thing. You sold yourself to the devil. Then. So what did Samson live for? He lived for essential desires. That's all it was. You look at the whole thing. Look at the whole story of the man. Even at the very end, when he goes and, and he's blind, he's in, the, he's, he's in the arena there, but with all the Philistines, and he goes and brings down the, the, the whole building, the whole stadium upon them and kills more people in that event than anything else in his life. And yet, you do not see anything of love for God. You don't see anything love for Israel. You don't see anything at all. But selfishness says, let me be avenged for my eyes. That's all it was. All it was. There was nothing good. There was nothing righteous. There was nothing noble in what he did. Absolutely nothing. Because it was all about him. It was all about his own life, his own one, his own desires, his own bitterness, his own anger. It was all about him. You know, that's a very miserable way to live. I struggle with giving you this quote because of who it came from. Ravi Zacharias. And Ravi Zacharias was a spiritual prostitute. He died in his sin. I mean, it was it was terrible. I mean, this this alter ego of this man. This one life that he's portraying of righteous, and behind it was, was a, a pervert, was a man in sexual sin, and the damage that he did to the kingdom of God is, is horrendous because of the position that he held. But yet he said things that were true. But now the things that he said that are true, those who are doubters rejected it because the man has no authority now. But here's what he said. At the heart of evil is autonomy, self-law, and self-love. Self-law always leads to a loss of law and self-love to a loss of love. He should have read his own statement there. You think you're going to get something because, well, you know, that's a little fanatical, it's too much, I don't want to give that much or whatever, and you think you're going to have some kind of freedom in it, but actually what it's doing is bringing you into greater bondage. It's taking the freedom that Christ wants to give you away from you. Because you don't understand what sin really is. You think this autonomy is freedom. And it's the worst bondage than you can imagine. And so in Judges chapter 16, verse 5, the rulers of the Philistines went to Delilah and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. Now, um, to understand what's going on here is uh, there are five Philistine lords. And so they made up the Philistines, so they had their own kingdom that was all, like, in one sense kind of united, but yet they were separate kings over their, over their, their cities and the people around them. And uh, they said that they would each give 1,100 shekels of silver. So it was 5,500 shekels of silver. You know what that comes out to in, in Uh, money today? Roughly a million dollars. So they went to Delilah and says, if you find out the source of Samson's strength, we will give you a million dollars. So did Delilah love Samson? Let's bring in a couple scenarios here. If a man's living with a woman, does that man really love that woman? Why? He's going to take her to hell. It's the reality of it. He's taking that woman to hell. He doesn't care about her at all. If a man loved a woman, he wouldn't want to take her to hell, right? He'd want her to go to heaven. But he is so consumed with his own desire that he'll take her to hell so he can have what he wants to have terrifying isn't it don't we don't understand we don't think like that because we want to find ways to justify things in our life but what are we really doing what's really going on he didn't love delilah delilah didn't love him he was getting out of her what he wanted and she was going to get out of him what she wanted no love and you know that always hurts in the end samson didn't delilah did not love samson and um When you look at this picture, Delilah is is a perfect expression of Satan. Perfect expression of it. And so here you have this man that does not understand the sin he's in and who he's sleeping with. Doesn't understand. Well, I had power. I just slew those Philistines. I just did this. Look at all this stuff I did. Look at this. Isn't that great? I got this power. I still got this power. God loves me, and so this must be wonderful. Look at all this. It's the danger of not understanding sin and the danger of thinking well of the devil. As if he has some good intentions for you, that he's going to offer you some kind of sin that's really going to make you happy. Oh, here, this is all you need is another experience, a high, is sex, whatever it is. All you need is this. And you'll finally be, ha- be happy. And what do you do? You chase after it. You think that it's going to be okay. And you fail to understand what it really is. You don't understand the enemy of your soul. You don't understand how absolutely hate-filled. I mean, this is, this is maliciousness beyond anything you can imagine. Consumed. Consumed with hatred for you. And all he wants to do and all the demon whores they want to do is they want to hurt God through you. So they can't hurt an all-powerful God except trying to hurt his heart. So they go after the apple of his eye and try and take everybody that was made in the image of God to make them in the image of the devil. You understand? That's what it's all about. That's what sin is all about, to make you in the image of the devil. That's a terrifying thought, right? And it should be. It should be. Because we need to have the fear of God that says, God, I, you know, I understand now a little bit more with this. I don't want this sin in my life. What compromises in your life? What areas have you went and downplayed sin in your life? Whatever that may be, what areas is it? And you need to understand what's behind it, the, real, the reality that's behind it. Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, Baptist preacher in England in the mid-1800s, a phenomenal mind, the man had just a phenomenal mind, um, Here's a little quote from him. Sin, a little thing? It girded the Savior's head with thorns and pierced his heart. It made him suffer anguish, bitterness, and woe. Could you weigh the least sin in the scales of eternity? You would fly from it as from a serpent and abhor the least appearance of evil. Look on all sin as that which crucified the Savior, and you will see it to be exceedingly sinful. That's a good explanation, isn't it? <laughs> but that's what it is. And that's what we fail to understand. We don't comprehend what we're dealing with. We don't comprehend what the enemy is after. All right. And, and I mean, some, when you read this story, it's like going, man, you just want to go to Samson and smack him going, how stupid are you? Come on. And he'd probably say, just as stupid as you are. <laughs> Right? I mean, really, that's what it comes down to be. So what happens? Going to give her a million bucks to find out the secret to his strength. So she starts asking him, what's the secret to your strength? And what happens the first time? He gets bound up. I think the first time it was, uh, it was uh, uncured uh, bowstrings, if I remember correctly. It says, oh, if I have five of them wrapped around my wrists, I'll, I'll be as weak as any other man. And so she ties him up. Philistines are in the room. She says, the Philistines upon you. He gets up, breaks, the, breaks the, 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 what's tying him, and, uh, you know, there's the Philistines. I don't know what he did to the Philistines. It doesn't say, but they were waiting for him. And you kind of understand that, well, does this woman really care for me? I mean, she's trying to get the secret of my strength for what purpose, to what end? You understand the end? I don't doubt he maybe even had an idea of. But sin blinds us so much that we don't care what the end is, then. And so in verses 16 and 17, it says, with such nagging, she proud of him day after day until he was tired to death. So he told her everything. Well, you know what? If he wasn't living in sin, he wouldn't have had that problem. Okay? So that's the nitty-gritty right there. If he would have been doing what was right and pleasing, he wouldn't have been in the situation. So because he was in the wrong situation, there was no protection. If we are not living under the shadow of the Almighty's wings, then there is no protection. The protection is only under him, only under his wing. That's the only place. You get outside of that, you are on your own, you have to deal with devils with your own ability, and guess what? You're not going to fare very well. And so three times she goes, and I mean, this guy is like, it's, this is dumb. I mean, this is dumb. And each time he's getting a little bit closer and a little bit closer to the truth of it until finally she wears him out with nagging. And like I said, if he wasn't there, they wouldn't have had a problem. But James tells us in verse 14, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. So you know what? The devil does not tempt you where you're not vulnerable. We deal with smart devils. They're not stupid. I don't know how smart angels are, but because they fell doesn't mean they became stupid. They're intelligent beings that are more intelligent than us. And they've watched us, and they understand how temptation works. They understand how we give into it, and they know how to do it. And after they've done their tempting, they know, okay, here's where he's weak. This is where I'm going to keep hammering him. And then what will he do? Just like Jesus, when he had his temptation, okay, it went and says that Satan left him for a season. And so the devil will come at you for a time, and if you fight and you resist, or you kind of just barely get by, he'll he'll back off until he's going to wait, until he knows when you're vulnerable. They know when we're vulnerable. You understand? They know, devils know, when we're vulnerable. When we're tired, we had a bad day, when we're grouchy, whatever it is, they know when we're vulnerable. And guess when it's going to come? it's going to come at your weakest point because that's where the chains can can come upon you when you don't want to fight anymore. Serious stuff. Because they are watching, they are waiting, they are planning, they are desiring, they are scheming, and we don't even comprehend it. We think that, well, we'll go on vacation, everything's going to be okay, and you go on vacation, and they don't. And they don't. They're right there. They're waiting. They're waiting for the situation to nab you. And I want, to be, I want you to be serious about it. I mean, I have all kinds of stories that I know, real-life stories of guys that were in rehabs, drug rehabs. They leave for one last fling, and they're dead. Especially with the drugs that are out there now, with fentanyl, unbelievable. Where they, When they went into the program, they could handle that drug to a particular place because they kept increasing the amount to keep the high. They come back into their sin, and they go back where they were, and they OD. It's gone. They're over. They're in hell. Serious. But it's not just drugs or sex. I mean, it's money. It's whatever it is. I mean, we have this addictive personality to sin, and if we don't understand it and deal with it correctly, it is going to drag us down. So, you know, what was going on here? Just picture this, you know, so... Take the image of Delilah that we would think is this beautiful woman and just paint this ugly old devil, okay? And there's Samson laying in the lap of this ugly devil as the ugly devil is just stroking his hair, you know, just being so nice, whispering sweet words to him and the whole time waiting for him to fall into that deep sleep so the covenant can be totally broken. So in verse 19, it says, having put him to sleep on her lap, she called a man to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him and his strength left him. What is the goal of Satan? I want you to think about this. When we look at this story here, what is, what is Satan really trying to do? What's he trying to do here? Because we've got to understand this is not unique to Samson, this is the same thing with each of us. What's he trying to do here? He wanted to put the man into spiritual sleep. And isn't that interesting that one of the songs we're speaking about is God Wakened me from my sleep? Okay? He's wanting to put us to spiritual sleep so that we don't think sin a big thing. So we begin to think differently about sin. We begin to think differently about holiness. We start thinking at a burden rather than a joy and access to God. We cha- he changes the whole thing. He whispers in our ear, begins to move us away, deals with our weariness and all the things that are going on inside of us and begins to deal with that stuff. Why is he trying to fall us, have us fall into this spiritual sleep? Here's where it comes down to be. This is a nitty-gritty right here. He wants Samson to break covenant with God. Because if he breaks covenant with God, he is no longer under God's protection. He is outside. He is outside of salvation. He's outside of that place of any relation with God. There is no protection. He's open, open game to the hordes of hell. And that's what the devil wants to do with each of us. He wants to bring us into temptation. Usually, it's not going to be when you're doing really well, oh, go sleep with a prostitute. But it's going to be something that starts coming in. You know, and you start opening the door a little bit more, and it's going to be the justifications that go, because the first time you do it, guess what? It's easier the next time, and then it's easier the next time. Right? Each time. And it's going to be there when you're tired or when you're stressed or when something's going on, and you open the door, and because the devil knows he has his foot in the door, he's going to keep pushing on that door. He's going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing until finally he has knocked the door down and taken possession of you. It's a serious step, because once the covenant is broke, There is no protection. Do you understand? Do we have even an idea of what that means? To left vulnerable, totally vulnerable to hell and the world. Nothing to defend us from it. When the covenant is broken, the man is conquered. You know, we have such a flippant idea, and I'm not saying it in this church. We have some good preaching and teaching that goes on here. So it's not in this church, but I'll tell you what, out there, there is such a low understanding of what salvation is, such a low understanding of it. We fail to understand how serious this is. We are literally in a fight for our lives. Literally, this is not make-believe. This is the most serious war that mankind has ever gone through. And this war is more important than any other war that has ever been waged on this planet because this is the war for the souls of men, women, and children. And it will, eat, it will determine the eternity of people. And if we are flippant about this salvation, if we are flippant about the covenant, then we will not hold the covenant serious. And we'll open ourselves up to compromise deeper and deeper until eventually that covenant is broken. Because God is a covenant making and keeping God. I don't have time to get in the covenant. But covenant is, is astounding. It's beautiful in scripture. Because here you have this God who needs nobody. Okay, he does not need you. He does not need me. He doesn't need angels. He doesn't need creation. He needs nothing outside of himself to be who he is. Yet, he does this thing that is absolutely astounding. He makes covenant with man. He binds Himself, This God of absolute freedom binds himself to us in covenant. And because of the greatness of the act, because of the greatness of the gift of what it is, so is the greatness of the crime when the covenant is broken. Do you understand? Am I making this clear? Because that's the seriousness of it. He wants to have you break covenant because then he can drag you away and hopefully get you all the way down to hell. That's what he's out after. And so the tragedy happens, cuts off his hair, didn't have to bind him. You understand his hands weren't bound or anything else. Just cut the hair off. Then Delilah called Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He woke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. Listen to this statement. This is terrifying. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Terrifying. But why? Okay, we need to ask the question: Why is it that he did not know that the Lord had left him? Why? Because he was so far from God that he didn't know when the final breaking of the covenant happened. I led this man to the Lord when I was pastoring in Detroit, and and uh, his uh, now his wife, and uh, they eventually moved to northern Alabama. And when he went down there, he he had a Ford. Uh, ranger and went down there and um, you know it Detroit the city of Detroit underneath people don't know this but underneath Detroit are these humongous salt mines I mean huge you can't even imagine how massive these things are they used to take people on tours down there and, and uh, they stopped it I don't know because of danger or whatever but I mean you see this equipment in these caverns that are just so massive and it's massive equipment because a person's standing next to the to the wheel and they look like a little ant I mean it's just unbelievable so you know what they put on the roads during winter? pure salt you know what pure salt does to cars especially older cars just rots them right out so he had a ford pickup brown at least it was brown covered some of it but you know the bed just flapped in the wind as he drove along you know and he goes down to alabama and they don't have that down there you know they may not have paint on their cars because it's burned off but they don't have rust you know and so they're going what happened to that what happened to your car now, imagine if you took that Ford and you put it about a mile away and he's selling it. So a guy comes to look at it and says, oh, there it is right there. See it a mile away? Uh, no, not really. It looks all right from here, but oh, great car. You know, you do the deal from a mile away, he'll get the money, but he better run because when the guy gets there, he's going to see the reality of it. But you get that truck right in front of him and the big dollar amount that he was asking, nobody paid for it because he sees the reality of it. When we are living close to Jesus, All he has to do is whisper in our ear and correct us, and we hear it. Or like a tender child, you can have a parent just look at the child, and the child break down in tears because they are so tender. You see, when we're tender to God, that's all he has to do is look at us, speak the word, and our heart is broken because because we have allowed this in our life, this thought, this attitude, whatever. But when we compromise, we start moving further and further away from him. We walk further and further away until finally we're so far, and when that final severing happens, we don't even know where it is because we just cut ourselves off from him. And that's exactly what happened to Samson. He was so far from God, when that final severing happened, he didn't even know that the power had left him. You see, Samson never accomplished God's will. He did so little. So 20-some-odd years, he was a judge of Israel and did absolutely nothing. When he became a judge, Israel was in bondage. When he died, Israel was in bondage. Nothing changed. Yes, there were some people that died, you know, some Philistines died, and there were some things that that, that happened there, but yet this man lived a defeated life and could not deliver another individual, couldn't deliver the nation that God wanted him to be able to deliver, but the man refused to do it. How much do we miss what God wants in our life? Because we're not willing to give all, because we're not willing to surrender, because we're only going to go so far with this, because, well, that's asking too much. I have plans, I have dreams, I have ambitions. And so we let all those things get in the way and keep us from the place of what he's really wanting to do through our lives. God has more for you to do than what you've understood. And you can see it happen, or you can become the very one that stops it. It depends on what you do with Jesus. Now, turn with me to James chapter 4. You know these verses. I know you've heard them. This, I love chapter 4. Chapter 4 of James is just just practical Christianity. It's what it is, just practical. You want to be a Christian, look at at James chapter 4, live it out, and you'll be doing something phenomenal. Beginning in verses 6 through 10. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Amen. Now, the first thing I really want to point out here, and it's there. It's there. It's right there, but it's so easy to miss. And you know what's, what, I, what's going on here? Spiritual war. A war is going on. There's a war taking place. There's an enemy that's after you, and there's a way to have victory over that enemy, and there's a way to be defeated to that enemy. There's a God that will fight for you if you are on his side, but he will not be on your side. You understand? God will not be on your side. You have to be on his side. And so you have to be doing his will. He's not going to change his will to accommodate you. You have to accommodate the king of kings. You have to align yourself with him. So there's a war. It's a spiritual war going on. It's going on in your life more than you understand. I mean, and I'm not talking about trying to become some spooky individual and you see a devil everywhere. But there is a reality that there is temptation. And temptation, the very nature of temptation, is that it comes from outside of us. And it uses what is inside of us. Okay? Okay. So if there's no such thing as temptation, then there wouldn't be a devil. But since there's temptation, we have an expression of evil that's coming from a source. Not this force, but a person. The person of the devil and the person of demons. Right? It's literally there. It's going on. There is an agenda Hell is wanting to take you right to hell. Hell is wanting to use a Delilah to bring you down. And whatever that Delilah is, you have to understand what your own Delilah is. And you have to understand it well, or you're not going to fight. If you saw the devil coming into your house, breaking into your house, and he it was the devil, as ugly as we could make him out to be, what do you think you're going to do? You're going to say, oh, come on in, you know, rape my children. Oh, do this, do that. You know, let them just ra- reap havoc on your home? Or are you are going to want to fight with everything inside of you? You see, what happens is because he begins to come after what we desire, we open our lives up and can open up our families. And so it's spiritual war. Whose side are you on? It's just that, nitty- it's just that simple. It, it, it falls right there. Either you're on his side or you're, you're his enemy. There's no neutral. There's no middle ground. There's no DMZ. It doesn't exist. You are on one side or the other. Now, I think at least most of you are on his side. And so what I'm trying to really say here, it has to do with the aspect of you making sure you're on his side. Because he's doing everything in his power to try and get you away from God, get you to break covenant. He's doing everything. And what does God do? He gives us these mind-blowing, simple promises that all we have to do is put them into practice. He doesn't go and say, climb the highest mountain, swim the deepest sea. He doesn't make this feat that we got to do. What does he do? He says, humble yourself. You want to talk about something hard? Deal with your pride. I'm not kidding, you know, because that's what really is the thing that starts keeping us away from. Because you have to have, you, when you have lack of surrender, you also have pride that's there. They go hand in hand. You can't separate them. So when there's pride in our life, there's also an unwillingness to surrender. And when we're not willing to surrender, there's the pride that says, I want things my way, not your way. And so he says, humble yourself. Well, I can't tell you how many people I have seen and known that have had their downfall because of pride. And so they become unteachable, unreprovable. You know, you just can't, you, nothing you can do for them. And you just look at it go, can't you see what you're doing? Can't you see what's going on in your life? Don't you see the path you're going down? And yet, no matter what it said, they won't hear anything because they are so proud, so full of self that they think they know what's going on and they fail to understand how deceived they have become because they're deceived. Mm-hmm. And deception is serious stuff. Jesus made a point that, that uh, is interesting. He said, if the light that's in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And so what does that mean? It means that if you think you're in light, but you're actually in darkness, the darkness is darker because you think you're in the light. That's what it was with the Pharisees. The Pharisees thought they were right with God when they weren't, but the light that was in them was darkness, so it was even worse darkness because they thought they were right. How deceptive is it to think that we're right with God when we're not? When we're harboring sin and compromise, the practice of sin, when we justify the stumblings. And I don't want to, you know, this isn't to beat anybody up, but we, you know, we do have our stumbling. We do have our issues, but it's a whole different thing when we start uh, planning it and making a way and just looking to it and hoping that, well, I can stumble just enough. And, you know, there may be one day where you go and purposely stumble and you never come back because the devil's playing for keeps. He's playing for keeps. Now, part of the thing that's here with this with this whole idea of spiritual warfare is something I want to bring out that is, is very scary because if you're proud, the devil can just sit back and watch because your enemy's God now. Okay, devil doesn't have to do nothing. If he can somehow get you lifted up in pride, Man, you don't win against God. You are in trouble. Because you've lifted yourself up now in pride, God becomes the one who's fighting against you now because he resists. And that's what that word resist means. He is actively opposing you, not passively opposing you, like just staying back and letting you reap what you sow. He is actively opposing you. He is resisting you because you have lifted yourself up in pride and you refuse to submit to him. And yet, the whole time is his appeal to us, his call to us, his desire for us to come to him and to know him and know the wonder of his love and the beauty of that fellowship. Now, you know what? It's a really, really, really good thing that we're fighting against the devil because it means then that we're on the right side. If you belong to the devil, he's just going to keep feeding you with whatever's necessary to keep you there. You know, he'll try and make you worse. I mean, his whole, his whole desire is to take you hell in as, as miserable a condition as you can. So if he can get you in depression and anxiety, and get yourself so beat down and, and you feel absolutely worthless and you take your life, he rejoices. But if he can't do it that way, he'll give you a billion dollars. You want to say his agenda is the same no matter what, but his very nature is so malevolent that what he wants to do is harm people the greatest way that he can to the greatest extent to become used to hurt as many people as possible. That's the enemy, and so Satan fights against the righteous, and uh, you ever get tired? Okay, I get tired. We all get tired, right? But I'll tell you what, that is the most vulnerable time. That's when the greatest uh, greatest attacks are going to come and become maybe some of the greatest setbacks in our life. Instead of us pressing forward and getting deeper, it starts driving us back because now we not only have... the the sin that we gave over to, but now we have the guilt and the condemnation and the devils that are there beating us with a a ball bat, trying to beat us down to take us further and further away so he can take us more and more into sin because he's always out after breaking covenant. He's always out to get us to break covenant with God. And so victory begins the total opposite way that it begins with the world. So what do you think? You're going to have victory. So, you know, war over in Israel now. So you think of the aspect of victory that Israel conquers Hamas. Okay? That's always the idea that you have the good guy conquers the bad guy, and this is great. And so the great fighters, these guys that are just these these macho men and can take down the Russian army with an AK-47 that never runs out of bullets. Right? I mean, isn't that the picture of what we try to think is is the way of victory? And yet everything in Scripture is 100% against that. Because if you want victory, you humble yourself before the only one that is victorious. He's the only one. Nobody else has victory in and of themselves. Only God has victory in and of himself. And if we want victory, we must bow to him. We must humble ourselves before him. We must come low to him and know that place of submission, of bowing to him and knowing that place to belong to him. And so victory comes through humbling ourselves before God. And so that's why he says, submit yourselves to God. Submit yourselves to God. Victory through reckless abandonment. I love that that thought there, reckless abandonment. It comes from Oswald Chambers when I was a newborn babe, you know, 40 some odd years ago when I read... Uh, is utmost for the highest that was a phrase in there and i never got it on my brain sense reckless abandonment just love that that's what it is reckless abandonment. what is that what is reckless abandonment look like god says do this you say yes that's it you do it no second guessing no arguing no debating you abandon yourself you do it you know look at abraham what a phenomenal man everything god told him to do even offering up isaac he immediately did it he didn't wait a day He immediately did it. When the sun came up, he acted upon what God told him. That's wonderful. That's the way that we should be, so quick to obey, so quick to find that place of loving obedience because we find obeying him the safest, most wonderful place and the only place that we walk in victory, the only place. And so submit yourselves to God. You know what we think? That to resist the devil, we've got to put on some boxing gloves. And you think you're going to beat the devil? Now, I won't deny that I have this desire. I know it's not going to happen, but I really do have this desire that Satan be chained up outside the gates, uh, uh, the pearly gates that go to heaven, and there's a ball bat there, and we each get a little bit of whacking time before we enter in, you know? I'd really like to do some whacking because, you know, I mean, what he has done to people, what he's done to me, what he's done to loved ones, I mean, I like to do a lot of whacking, you know? But that's not it. God will take care of all that. But still, it's the idea that, that, that we have this enemy And we're not going to overcome them because we come at them with a ball bat or we come against them with a Bible in our hands. We have the idea that if I just say the name Jesus, the devil has to tremble. That's true if you're in right fellowship with God. If you're not, it doesn't work. You understand? It doesn't work. When I passed it in Detroit, when I passed in Detroit, there was a a Baptist pastor that I was friends with. He was just a, a precious man, a very different man. And um, he bought this uh, old chapel and turned it into a playhouse to put on plays, Christian plays. And so, you know, we got together for breakfast occasionally and talked and, and uh, you know, came through the grapevine of the play that he was having, that he was putting on during Halloween. And it was Dracula. And so, you know, I called him and I says, what are you doing putting, doing Dracula. And he says, Hollywood has twisted the whole thing of, what that, of that book, of the original. You go to the original and the story's very different. He says, come and, and, and look at it and tell me what you think when you're done. And there's one scene in there I never got out of my brain. Dracula comes up to this man that has a crucifix and he's holding out to ward off Satan. Okay, this man that is demon-possessed. And Dracula goes takes it, rips it out of his hands, crumples it up, throws it to the ground, and said, that only works for those who believe. So speak the name of Jesus all day long, and if you don't believe it, it does absolutely nothing for you. It's not a magical name. The power of the name is the faith that's behind it. Now, God has that power, period. Period but for to operate in our life, it is by faith. And if we don't have faith, it's not going to happen. So I overcome the devil by submitting to God, not by fighting the devil. I'm not going to say there isn't times to rebuke and to bind and cast out devils. There is definite times for that. But that's a maturing place. That's a place where you're, where you're rising up in your faith, and now you're starting to take territory. It's a whole different thing. But you want to overcome the devil, the greatest way is to humble yourself before God and submit to him. And in the submitting to him, you are resisting the devil. It's a simultaneous act. If you're going one way and you go to go the other way, you turn around you go the other way. You can't go both ways at once. So if you submit to God, you're resisting the devil. If you're not submitting to God, you're submitting to the devil. Okay, just that simple. Not rocket science. It's simple stuff, really, this whole thing. And so we're given this phenomenal promise then. where God says, come near to me. Come near. And, you know, there's so much to that, so much. I mean, it's God wants us. He's inviting us, compelling us, kind of like the message of Sunday. Come to me. So what does God want to do? He wants to capture our hearts. He's willing to do that. You understand he's not in competition with the devil. There's no competition. But he's willing to go after us to capture our hearts. But he'll only capture the hearts that want to be captured. He'll not capture any heart that doesn't want it. But he will capture the heart that wants to. So what captivates your heart right now? What is a consuming thing in your life? What do you think about more than anything? Because what we love is what we dwell on most. And I'm not talking about, you know, you're at work, you got to work, okay? If your work is demanding thought, you got to think about what you're doing. You're not neglecting God in that. You're doing what a job has to eat. He understands that perfectly. Where does your heart go back to when you have the time? Where does it start going back to? Is it going back to Jesus quickly because your heart is there? Is there a song that starts rising up because you've been singing it all day, but then you have this time of work, it's intense, you can't think about anything else, and when you're finally done, the song is right there again. It's just in you, it's just what's there. It's because where your heart is. You see, he's wanting to capture our heart. He's wanting to show himself the most wonderful, most loving, most glorious being. And he's inviting us to come near to him. But you can't come near to him in your sin. You can't come near to him in your compromise. You can't come near to him if you're seeking after the things of this world. You can't because they're at war with each other. So what captivates your heart will captivate your mind. That's why I said, what do you think about all day? What is it? What is it? Because what captivates your mind is what has captivated your heart. If you want your mind to be captivated by that which is good and lovely and beautiful, as Paul told us, If you want your heart to be captivated by that, then you've got to think you uh, you have to get your mind on it and vice versa. You have to begin to love something better than what this world is. So our responsibility, this is our responsibility. Okay, he calls us, he woos us, he compels us, but it's our responsibility to passionately seek after God. He invites us, okay, come near to God. What has he done? He has made the way. He's done all these things to make the way He went and bridged this this infinite distance between man and God through Calvary that he could come close to us and then he says, okay, child, come. Come near to me. And what do we do? Do we say yes? Do we say no? Do we fight? Do we rebel? What do we really do in that? Because it's our responsibility to seek after him as he's called us. And you would not be here tonight if there was not a calling on your life, if he was not appealing to you, inviting you. But what do you do with it? And you know, the scary thing is to be in the midst of a church that is preaching the gospel, that has has the word of God going and compelling and calling you into deeper and to become so used to it that you no longer hear it is a very dangerous place to be because you've hardened your heart now. And so we have this responsibility to seek after God. And how do we seek after him? There's a host of ways, prayer, study of the word, um, repentance, as I'll touch on in just a moment. You know, it's all these ways, all these things that are part of the process of seeking after him, drawing near to him. He has given us the key to it here. You understand? He gave us the key. Draw near to God. Now he's given us these understandings. Humble yourself. Submit yourself. You know, take this responsibility for your life because that brings us next. What does he say after this? He talks about repentance. And repentance is a gift of God. It's the love of God. And, you know, I know it's so easy for us to, to do this. But it's so easy to think that, you know, repentance is just this negative thing, that God's angry at me again. And so, you know, it might be from our upbringing as, as, as uh, children and our parents could never be satisfied and happy with anything we did. And so we always think that God's just mad at us and I blow on it again. He's angry at me again instead of understanding that every time he calls me to repent, every single time, without fail, he's saying, child, I love you. Draw near to me. Every time. Single time. He is always inviting us. And what is the path? Child, sin here. This attitude, this practice, this thing in your life, it's separating you and me. Deal with it. It's the invitation. Come near. Deal with it. Deal with it. And if he comes to you a 100 times in a day... And calls you to repent a hundred times in a day. A hundred times in a day. He's saying the same identical thing. Child, I love you. Repent. Get this out of your life. Because he cares. He literally really cares. And I don't understand that. I can't tell you I can explain it. I can quote scripture. I could give you all kinds of ideas and teaching and the word of God on it. But I still can't explain why does he love us. Other than that it was his own choice. That's who he is. And so repentance brings his nearness. Sin separates. But you know what we try to do here as Christians? It's very easy for us to have Christian sins and non-Christian sins. Well, they out there, they got, they got the, the non-Christian sins. That's going to sam- damn them to hell. And, you know, well, I've got Christian sins, so they're not as bad as those sins. And that's a lie. John gave us the definition of sin. The sin for the Christian and the sin for the non-Christian, it's the same. It's called lawlessness. All sin is lawless. So you know what that means? Your sin is just as lawless as the sin of the prostitute, as a drug dealer, as the murderer, as anybody else that's out there, just as evil, just as lawless. We don't want to think of that, think like that. But you know, if we start thinking right about sin and right about God, then we might really start dealing with things because God wants to do wonders through his people. He wants to do wonders through His people because we begin to to desire Him so much that we want to just bring joy to His heart and we want to be used by Him to glorify His name and our life is becoming more and more refined and more and more beautified that, that it becomes something that's usable because God wants to do this. He wants to reveal Himself to us so He can do this work through us because He loves the rebels out there. Guess what we were at one time. He wants them to come in. His heart breaks over it. and So repentance brings His nearness. Now, you know, some of you have learned this. Some of you still struggle with it. But, uh, you know, you sin. Attitude, bad word, whatever. It's whatever comes out of you. Whatever expression it is. And you know what the devil wants? He wants you to repent later. A lot later. So he wants you to waller in self-pity for a while. And think to yourself, oh, it's so miserable. I just keep doing, I can't do anything right. And just... This whole thing, you beat yourself up and you go through this, this, this morbid introspection that keeps you in this trap. Because morbid introspection is a trap. It's a trap. It's a miserable trap. It'll keep you miserable. It will keep you from ever knowing the joy of God. Because anytime time you blow it, then you're just going to be in this miserable trap. And the devil beat you for a while and give you a bat to beat yourself. And then take another bat and beat you some more. And hopefully make it that you'll never go back to Jesus that, the, that, that this decline that's going on in you is going to take you deeper and deeper and farther and farther away so eventually you break covenant with God. So you know what you need to do? I mean, this needs to be the policy. It needs to be something you become determined in your life to do. It's something you need to put in practice. When you find yourself not doing it, you need to immediately recognize it and then respond. You need to repent quickly and you need to repent well. What I mean by that is when you sin, the moment you recognize, the moment you realize it, you deal with it then. You're at work, under your breath, you say, God, forgive me. Man, that was a bad attitude or whatever. Deal with it right then and then deal with it in specifics. Don't go at the end of the day, well, God, forgive me for everything I did. That is worthless and it does nothing. I don't believe forgiveness comes that way. God, forgive me for the anger. Forgive me for the lust. Forgive me for the pride. Forgive me for this, God. Help me to overcome. God, this is so much in me. I want to overcome it. But then you know what you do after? Okay? You know what you do after? You become thankful. Thank you, Jesus. Because you know what the devil wants even after you ask forgiveness? You know what he wants? He wants to keep pointing out "Look look at what you did. 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 So what do you do? You submit to God. This is what you said. You'll remove my sins from me as far as the east is from the west. You submit to him. You turn your back on the devil. You stop listening to the devil. You begin to listen to God. Some of us can be really good listeners to the devil. I'm, you know what I'm talking about? You listen real well. He speaks and you pay attention. God speaks and you don't hear it. It needs to be the other way around, that we start shutting off the voice of the hater of our soul So we can start walking in the victory that he has for us. Because repentance is a path to freedom and victory. It is freedom from condemnation, not bondage. You understand? It's freedom from condemnation. I am forgiven. So what sin won't he forgive? In your life, what sin won't he forgive? The one you don't repent of. Get it off your back. Get it off your shoulders. Get it off quick. Don't let it stay on you. Don't let it become a weight. Don't let it beat you down. Get it off as fast as you can. Don't let the devil win. He may have tempted you. You may have given in to something, but don't let him win. When you recognize it, you repent, you pray quickly, and you go to praise and thanksgiving to God so that he does not have authority over you. So you are breaking the bondage. You are finding liberty then. And you're finding joy. And you know, Christianity without joy is a very miserable religion. It's not what it is. It's not what God made it to be. There is great joy in his presence, his fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So I just want to close with this. You and I need a better love than Delilah. Okay? Just that simple. And until you have a better love than Delilah, you're going to keep going back to Delilah. You're going to keep going back there. You've got to have a better love. I'm not kidding about this. And the only love that's going to do it is going to be Jesus. And why people have the same cyclical type of thing, the same things go on, they keep going through things, thing, you know, month after month, year after year, is because they're not in love with Jesus. You need a better love than your sin. You need to really, really look at it because what has your sin ever given you but pain, sorrow, misery, heartache, guilt, all the other junk. It's never given you anything, but yet you harbor it in your mind. You hold on to it. Jesus offers you peace and joy. You reject that to stay in the misery of your sin instead of obtaining the victory that comes through Christ. You are clinging to Delilah when God is offering you deliverance from her, victory over her. We need a better love than Delilah. And that Delilah is the devil, the sin, this world, is all the things of it. We need a better love. Robert Murray McSheehan was a Scottish preacher that saw revival in Scotland in the late 1830s. He was a phenomenal man of God. And he died at the midst of revival, just like David Brainerd did. And uh, he made this powerful little point let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart, so there will be no room for folly, the world, Satan, or the flesh. Father, we come before you now in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus. You have never lost a battle. You can't lose. It's impossible. And all those who follow in your train will have your victory. Because there is no other victory that can give us victory over self and sin and Satan. But Lord, we have to have a better love. A better love than our love of self, than our love of this world, than our love of sin, than our love of Satan. Lord, We must have a better love. Lord, that is why I have... I become more and more convinced as time goes on that the first commandment is so vitally important that it's not just the first commandment because it's above other commandments. It's the first because it is the most necessary in our life because without fulfilling that first commandment, there is no victory. There is no overcoming this world. And Lord, every temptation, I believe, is ultimately an attack against that first and greatest commandment. Lord, you offer us this gift to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Even though it is not possible in our own ability, you offer us this gift if we would but submit, if we would but humble ourselves, if we would but repent of those things that separate, that you would show yourself more beautiful and more precious. The revelation, the personal illumination we would have of you would increase and it would grow and become more powerful. There is victory with you, dear Jesus. Lord, it's not something we've got to fight up of ourselves or work up of our own ability, but yet it comes through humbling ourselves and submitting ourselves to you. And Lord, repentance is one great, tremendous way of submitting to you. You are right, God. I am wrong. Forgive, cleanse, purify, renew. Lord, you are good. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your kindness in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus. Is there anybody here that you need to be at this altar because God has spoke to you? Because there's things not right in your life and you need to get them right, that you have a Delilah you need to deal with? Then, if that's the case, I want you to find a place up here. I'm not going to ask a second time. This is just a one-time thing. Come, sweet spirit, come, oh God. These are your sons up here, O God. These are yours. They belong to you, Jesus. Come near, draw near, O God, and our feeble drawing near to you, O God. Draw near, O God. Your blood is more than enough, O God. Your blood is more than enough, O God. There is forgiveness with you, O God. There is reconciliation with you. There is restoration, O God. There is new life. Lord, we are in constant need of new life that comes from abiding in you, O God. Jesus, help these men. You didn't purchase them with your own bloods for them to live defeated lives. You purchased them to walk in the wonder of your victory, O God. There is victory. There is victory, O God. There is victory in you, dear Jesus. There is no defeat, O God. And when you are Lord and Savior, when you rule in our life, O God, there is victory. You bring victory where you are, O God. Lord, I'm asking for men that would not just want to pray a little prayer up here and think everything's okay, but God, I'm asking for men that would begin to learn how to repent, learn how to accept forgiveness, and learn how to begin to submit to you more and more and more, oh God, and find the joy of sweet surrender. God, they need a better love than Delilah. They need a better love than Delilah. Jesus, we all need a better love, and you are the only love, the only one that can do it, oh God. For your name's sake, Jesus, Jesus, These are your treasures, O God. These are the apple of your eye. These are precious in your sight, O Lord. These are ones you died for, O God. Lord, you do not want them to be defeated. You do not want them to be downcast, O God. But you offer them the joy of this salvation that is victorious, O God. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Come, Holy Ghost. Repentance the acceptance of forgiveness by faith leads to praise and as you press through with whatever it is that you come to this altar to deal with as you press through let praise begin to rise up in you let thankfulness thankfulness for what he has done that he would forgive that he would restore that he would make new